You know, it's strange how certain dates and certain things in our mind uh, become fixed because of events. Today is 9-11. And it means that, uh, I think, 15 years ago, uh, an event happened in the life of our, of our nation and really of our world that changes the way that we perceive things. From that day forward, it seems like that people have been more afraid and more fearful. But the reality is, is that one of the things that causes us in life to, to trust God is to, as we go through the things of life that are fearful is to realize that, you know, we can trust him no matter what. And so for those of us who are in Christ, while we may be fearful of certain things and because we live in the world and we're people who have fears, we can also be hopeful about many things because we can learn to trust in God. He does not leave us nor forsake us. So as we, I wouldn't call it celebrate as we remember 9-11 and the events of 9-11. Let's keep in, this in mind that God is there for us even in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of things in life. And no matter what, the thing that's most important anyway is really relationships. We talked about that last week. We started this series last week called The One Another's of Scripture um, because there's, there's so many things in Scripture that we could talk about. But one of the things that's hugely important for us to talk about is what is most important to the heart of God. And, and one of the things that's one of the key verses in the life of, of any church, but uh, it's been a key verse of one of the two verses that we constantly, t- we talk about Matthew 28, the Great Commission a lot about sending into the world. But also we talk about Matthew 22, and, and it's also in Mark as well. The passage, it says this, We shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength, and you'll love your neighbors yourself. We talked about that last week. That, that when somebody asks Jesus what's the most important commandment, the most important thing that we can do in life, what did he talk about? He talked about relationships. Relationships. And not only that, Scripture talks about it, but one of the things it talks about probably as much or more than anything in all of Scripture is this thing of relationships. And it's, and it's really, there, there is at least, based on what translation you look at, either 58 or 59, what they call, we call one another Scriptures. In, in, in the Bible, things that talk about how we're to act toward one another. And so we don't have time in the series, uh, we're going to do it this month and next month, talk about all of these, we're going to talk about some of these because they're hugely important. Today, if you have your Bible, turn with me to, to uh, John, the Gospel of John, chapter 13, and we're going to hang out there for a little while today. We're going to focus on a couple of verses, but we're going to look back and forth at some verses around it to set context as well. In John chapter 13, it's an interesting passage because, I mean, all of us have things in our life. Have you, do you all have family traditions that you do, like at Christmas or at Thanksgiving? And when you get there, you kind of have these feelings about their traditions because it's something you've always done. And, and if it's something not exactly right, you kind of like feel everything's messed up, you know? Um, and it may be, I will tell you, in life, as you move around, as changes come, as your kids go and, and come, and traditions change. And, and things change, but there's still these things, these warm, fuzzy feelings you have, these memories you have of times when you were a kid growing up, and it was Christmas Eve or Christmas morning, or it's Thanksgiving, or it's some other, it may be a birthday, the way y'all celebrate birthdays, or something like that in your life, and you have these feelings about them. Well, this in this event here in John chapter 13 is it's kind of one of those events because it was the night before Jesus would die on a cross. But it was also he and his disciples were gathered in an upper room to share an important meal together, the annual Passover meal. 
And up to this point in time, it had always been a kind of thing that all the Jewish people had a, a, a very warm and room. As a kid, they would grow up and they would go through this process of celebrating together this Passover meal. And this Passover meal probably had a lot of memories for the kids because it was very important for the parents and they would share it with their kids because it reminded them of God's faithfulness a long time ago when he had, rem he had protected them as they were in the land of Egypt. And how the death angel had passed over their houses and how they'd been protected. So they had these feelings. And I'm sure as the disciples came into this room with Jesus, they had all those feelings attached that they'd grown up with and been with all their lives. But for some reason on this night, it's different in John 13. Because the joyful memories, in a sense, are overshadowed by more pressing feelings. Because Jesus tells them and had told them that, that uh, there are uh, some things that had caused some confusion. Jesus had told his followers that he was soon to die. And they're going, like, no way. I mean, you're a young man. You're only in your early 30s. But they didn't understand the confusion that created tension among them. And to add to the tension, in the midst of this, and you can read in the middle of chapter 13, we're not going to look at that today, but the middle of chapter 13, he talks about, he says that one of the disciples will betray him. And they're all sitting around probably looking at each other. Well, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? And they're going, like, no way. We'd all do the same thing, right? And so that was what was going on here in the midst of all this thing. And so he starts off and, and talking about some stuff. He talks about this person betraying him. And then later on in the passage, he gives something. The thing that we're going to look at today is John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. He gives what's called a new command. He says it this way. Jesus says, a new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another this is one of those one another passages in scripture and i believe any conversation any study of these passages begins and ends with this passage because not only is this the only time it's, it's not the only time that it's talked about because it's also talked about other times in scripture of, of the 58 59 passages one another there's several of them that are repeated multiple times. This is none repeated more than this passage or this, this thought, love one another. It's repeated 13 times in the New Testament. And usually, let me ask you something. When you repeat something to your kids, do you, does that mean it's important? Yeah, you keep telling them the same thing over and over because you want them to do it, right? And so the scripture tells us, not only Jesus, but the uh, letter writers, uh, mostly Paul, says this over and over and over and not only that the force of the language demands attention as well because he not only says we he doesn't get, make this a suggestion he doesn't say oh i would suggest that you love one another he says you must love one another and he states it as a command and then he follows it with this by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another Paul says in Romans 13, 8, it says we have a continuing debt to love one another. The Apostle John, sometimes he's called the Apostle of Love because he talks about it so much. And, and five times in 1 John chapter 3 and chapter 4, he, 1 John 3 and 4, he talks about this whole thing of love one another. He keeps talking about it and talking about it and talking about it. And the question is, when I look at this passage, who is Jesus speaking of when he says one another? Because last week we looked at this passage which you know, the, the great commandment, which says, love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. And we went and he described what a neighbor is by another passage in Scripture where Jesus talked about who the neighbor is. 
And we discovered that our neighbor is not the person that lives next door to us. The neighbor that Jesus is talking about in that passage in, uh, in the Great Commandment is anyone that we encounter. And everyone we encounter. We treat everyone with respect because they're, from, they're made from, uh, by God. So who is he talking about when he says one another in this passage when he's talking to his disciples? Well, the Bible uses, uh, the Bible is cohesive in how it teaches. It, meaning that it's not, it doesn't teach one thing somewhere and something else, something else, where else, and it gets us confused. Because as we look at the whole of Scripture, there's a powerful metaphor that's used in Scripture about us and our relationships with one another. And the powerful metaphor is the metaphor of the family. It is embedded in the fabric of the entire Bible. And the Bible, I mean, how many times do we hear that God is our Father? And then also in the New Testament, in Colossians 1, it says in a sense that Jesus is our elder brother. He's the firstborn. And then it uses the term about us in 1 Peter 2 and 1 Peter 5. It says we are brothers and sisters. Adelphites is a, is a Greek word that's used there to, to, to describe our relationship. Matter of fact, the word brothers, I mean, how many of you grew up in traditions that you called each other brother so-and-so? Anybody grew up in a tradition like that? Some of you may have. It's all right. You know, it's a really a good biblical term because, you know, that term is used to describe our relationship 250 times in the Bible. The word brothers to re in reference to Christians, it's talking about the family relationship that we have. And so this whole concept of being born, reborn into God's family is something throughout Scripture. So in Hebrews 13, 1, it says, keep on loving each other as brothers. And then Paul talks about it also in Romans 12, 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love and that term brotherly love is a, is a, is a the, the interesting thing about the word love in our culture we use the word love in a very random fashion would you say i mean like we say i love ice cream and i love my wife do we mean the same thing i hope not but we use the same word and we don't define it ever hopefully we define it with our wife you know or whatever but the reality is, as we use that word, but in, in Greek, in the original language that the Bible was, the New Testament was written in, there is multiple words for love. And this word is the word phileo, brotherly love. And we know it because there's a city in Pennsylvania that's called what? Philadelphia, okay? The city of brotherly love. And, and so we kind of, you can remember that, Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, phileo, brotherly love. It's the, it's the word that's used in scripture here. And so we see that here. Uh, it means to go beyond just uh, encouraging each other. It's, it's being devoted to one another because of a connection we have. It's a heartfelt love from the bottom of your heart, you might say. So the ultimate standard that we're talking about here in Scripture when it talks about this one another passage for understanding this love that is required of us is plainly stated in John 13, 34. Once again, when it says, says this, as I have loved you, so you must be love one another. Additionally, not only is it the standard for understanding love, the kind of love we're to have toward each other, it is also, the Bible says, the motivation for our love. Because in 1 John 4, 11, it says, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It's that motivation. God loved us, so what do we do? We love each other in the same way. So we have both those things going on. Now, going back to this passage of Scripture in John 13, it's an interesting context because it's the night before Jesus' death, and John gives us this intriguing story that's told nowhere else in the Gospels. And it's the story of how Jesus, 
He's there in the upper room with the disciples, and nobody is looking for an opportunity to serve. They're all looking around trying to find positions of privilege. And Jesus, of all people, the person who was supposed to be honored, stood up and he found a basin and a bowl, which was common in that day, were in the room because people walked and with sandals or dirty feet. And so the, the host would have somebody, or they would do it, or somebody would do it, would wash their feet. But who washes the feet of, of the disciples? Not one of them. Jesus goes around to all the disciples and begins to wash their feet. This is the picture that's there previous to when Jesus talks about this whole thing of, of, of uh, loving one another. And, were, and I asked the question, I thought about, were the disciples shocked at this when Jesus did this? Probably not. Because this was not out of character for Jesus. As you look at his life, one of the things that we, what we see is he not, only, uh, he not only taught this, but he modeled this in his life, this thing, this, this idea of, of being humble and serving others. And he lived it out. And so when, uh, so we, when he began this passage in, in John, John 13, 1, this is what it says. It says, having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. All, so it kind of tells us that all along Jesus has been doing this. He's been loving them in the same way. He's, he's been loving them along the way, and now at the very end of, this, of his earthly life, what he's doing is he's expressing this once again. And he goes into the story of washing the feet and all the things that go on further that. Now, the question that, that comes to mind when I was reading this, how do you do this? How do you maintain this, this loving servant mentality toward those in our lives. I mean, how do you do that? Because so often we have this real struggle with position. I feel like we have to be, if we're really, you know, in charge, and all of us want to be large and in charge, how do we maintain this humble attitude? Because Jesus had it, and we're supposed to be what? Christians, means little Christ, and how do we do that? Uh, Jesus was ultimately the best leader in all of history, okay? I don't think without a doubt he was the best leader in all of history. But he didn't lead the way so often we lead in the world. He left, let, lived, uh, led in a humble way. And how I, I think there's a key to this. Uh, how do we do this? How do you maintain the servant mentality? In verse 3 of John 13. And it says this, Jesus knew that the Father would put all things under his power and that he came from God and was turning to God. What does that say? It's saying that he was secure in where his identity came from. So often the reason in life that we have problems in relationships is we're insecure. We're worried that we do this for somebody. What will happen is, is that you know, they will think that we're you know, under them. We have this over-under kind of mentality. But being secure in his identity freed Jesus to focus on the needs of others. When you, you know, so often we're sitting around, we're worried about what somebody next to us or across the hall or somewhere, somebody's going to see us and they'll think, well, you know, worse of us. If we don't care what anybody else thinks about us, now we care to an extent because we want to have a good relationship with them. We want to lead them toward Christ. But if that's not where we get our identity, if we think, if all we do is get our identity from what everybody else thinks about us, how cool we are, we miss the point. And so we'll have a problem with serving other people and loving people the way Jesus loved them. But what is going on here is Jesus saying, hey, my identity, the, you know, the Father has put all things under me, uh, and he, I came from the Father, I'm returning to the Father, I know where I came from, I know where I'm going. So because of that, I'm secure, and I don't have to worry about this. And because of that, I can, I can lead in this way. And so we see that in Scripture uh, there in this as what well. So many hurtful things are done in relationships because people are acting out of their insecurities. 
See, knowing we have security from God alone sets us free to love and serve with abandon. Okay, so we look at the scripture and it says, Jesus says, okay, love other people. And we're going like, yeah, that's not too bad. But then he puts two little words in there that mess up the whole thing. And those two little words are, love other people, how? As I have loved them. Oh, me. Okay, that sets a whole new standard for love right here. I thought about that yesterday. I did a wedding ceremony for some good friends here at the church, a young girl who is, uh, uh, grew up with my son, and, and we've known in this church ever since I've been here for 14 years, and uh, enjoyed doing that, but it made me remind, and I was also was thinking about up here when we were singing, Janelle was up here, and she was singing. I did her wedding a few years ago, and, and uh, every time I do a wedding, I have certain phrases, certain things I send to people. I say, hey, this is, is this work for you? This is what I'm standard wedding, my, my standard wedding ceremony. I've come to find there's no such thing as a standard wedding ceremony. Uh, so this is mine, and this is what we'll do. But there's always a phrase every year, every wedding ceremony that I've used, and, and, I, and I'm pretty sure that I got it from my father-in-law who did Vic, my wife said I was wedding ceremony 37 years ago. I said the same thing for my kids, both my kids when I did their weddings, and probably about 100 plus weddings over the year, I said the same thing. And this is what I, it says about our relationships. And think about what it says, okay? This is a quote from the wedding ceremony. When I'm talking to the couple and they're standing there before me, and, and I'll say this, you know, scripture says we're to love one another, and it means this. In this relationship, the husband has been charged with the responsibility of loving his wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And the wife has been charged with the responsibility of loving her husband with the same degree of devotion with which she loves our Lord. And if you think through the ramification of that, you know what that means? How much did Christ love the church? The church is not a building. The church is people, you, me. He was willing to die on a cross for us. So when I challenge people, I say, that's what it means you're willing to do for that person standing in front of you. You love that person so much that you will place yourself in a position of servanthood for that person. And then the wife does the same thing. It's back and forth. It's mutual submission. Now, that's tough. And when I say that, I don't think at the wedding ceremony they're both have this glazed look when I'm, you know, talking to them. You know, they're they're all emotional. It's really cool, you know, sit there. I'm I'm I can talk to them, and they're all weepy, you know, and stuff like that. You know, I do that. I've done it a hundred times, and I'm sure I was all weepy when I when Vicky and I got married. I know it's a blur right now. I can't remember, but uh, uh, and probably you too. Okay. Uh, and so I always give them the book. I always actually print out the wedding ceremony in a booklet, and I give it to them. I said, this is going to remind you what you said to each other, uh, because this is what you promised, and this is what we talked about. So read it once a year just to get refresher, you know? I don't know if they do that or not, but anyway. Uh, but when I do that, I think about, is that possible in our power to love that way? Do you and I have the possibility of loving somebody so much that we're willing to sacrifice self for them? Sometimes. But we're not, we're, we're, we're all sinners at heart, okay? Let's just be honest. And sometimes we're selfish. And we want our way. Every time that happens in a relationship, guess what happens? It harms the relationship, sometimes destroys relationships. So, 
recognize the reality that you don't have the power to act with this kind of love is the first step that Jesus is talking about here when he says love one another. He's going like, it seems like this is an impossible challenge that he gives us. Love one another as I have loved you. Man, that's tough. Matter of fact, I think it's impossible in our own power. But that's the good news because Jesus is not trying to say, give you something impossible. He's trying to tell you, he's not trying to discourage us, but he's trying to give us, uh, tell us something important here. That we need to find a power source outside of ourselves that we can love this way. And what Jesus wants to do is this. Jesus, in this passage, when he says, as, as I love you, he's not trying to discourage us. He's trying to encourage us to do one thing. He wants us to learn to trust him. Jesus wants us to learn to trust him. He sits the bar so high that the only way it could be reached was by living and thinking in an entirely new way. Christianity is not about trying harder. It's about trusting Jesus. And it's not a passive trust where we simply sit and wait for God to act. It's a real trust involving your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the greatest difficulty of life offers us so often the greatest opportunities to trust. 9-11 for many Christians was a time for us to learn and, and focus on who's really in charge. Because you can get the idea that everybody else, are, all the circumstances are in charge. But the reality is you come to a place in your life where death is no longer a thing to be fearful about. Or is it something that we simply trust God that, you know, this, this is, while we're here, this is the way it is, but there's something even better. And when we have that mindset, what happens is it changes everything. And so I would simply ask you, and this is something I saw uh, in, in a book, uh, a prayer, and, I, and I've written it down, and I pray it every, occasionally. It's a simple prayer. I would, I would encourage you to pray this prayer. Father, I don't have the strength to do this on my own. Now, what if you started your day like that? Father, I don't have the strength to do this on my own. Now, I know that's a very general prayer, but I'm, I guarantee you it'll apply to something tomorrow. Something. I don't have the strength to do this on my own. Make this decision. Uh, understand something. Uh, not have the fear to do what I already need to do. I'm trusting in your strength to enable me to believe and think and say and do the right thing. In Jesus' name, amen. What if we prayed that prayer every day and meant it? That's exactly what Jesus is trying to point to when he says to you and to me, love one another. A new command I'll, I'll give you. And the new command is to love one another as I, Jesus says, love you. Not because you can do it, but because it will enable you to trust me more because you can't do it. And how do I know that's true? Well, let me, let me just talk to you, show you earlier. Earlier in that passage in John 13, in verses 13 through, through 15, he says this. He, this is before he gives the command. He says, Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, and this is right after he'd washed their feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Let me ask you a question. Was he literally saying you need to wash each other's feet? Maybe, maybe not. I think it's more figurative than literal. Because I'm a, my parents grew up in a brethren, brethren church. I don't know if you know anything about brethren. But one of the things they do is they wash each other's feet. They take this passage very literally. 
I'm thinking it's more figurative, though, because he's not talking about why was he washing their feet just because their feet were dirty? No, he was washing their feet to show him that I am willing to do what it takes to show, express love to you. I'm willing to humble myself before you to do what it needs to be done. He was saying that to them. And so he says, he says to us, he says, well, I've done this for you as an example. Now, what do you do? Just go and talk about it a lot. No, he says, go and do what I have done. And then later, once again, he goes back to verse 34, and he says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. You see, we need to understand the difference between emotion and action, between what you feel and what you do. And it empowers every relationship you have. How do you love, how do you express love when you just don't feel like you have it in you to love? I mean, most of us, you know, I mean, the reality is that so often what happens is, is we just, we, we say, we think that love is this feeling. Love is a feeling. Or as Tina Turner said, no, it's a secondhand emotion. Those of you who know old music know who I'm talking about. I used to really hard to remember music lyrics. I didn't have it in my notes, and I just thought about that last service right in the middle of it. I went, secondhand emotion. No, uh, but anyway... You go back and look at Google it or something, you know, Spotify it or whatever you do with it. And, uh, Tina Turner, you know, whatever. Bad, bad song. Um, how, what do you do? How do you, how do you love when you just don't feel like you're in love? Well, Jesus, Jesus is not telling us, he's not commanding us to have a feeling. See, you cannot command an emotion. But you can command an action. You cannot command an emotion, but you can command an action. Jesus is not saying this here, love as I have loved. He's not saying you should feel this way. Let me tell you something, guys. If you've been married more than 15 minutes, I've probably figured this out already. I'm talking to guys. Women very rarely say this. Guys say this all the time. It's the dumbest thing. I do it in premarital counsel. I tell them this is the number one thing you don't ever want to say to your wife. And I still find myself saying to my wife after 37 years, you shouldn't feel that way. Can I command an emotion? You shouldn't feel that way. That's a command. You shouldn't feel that way. You know, can I command her to not feel that way? That's just something you feel. You know? And, and I still don't understand. I've been married 37 years and I still don't get it. You know? Some of you guys are laughing because you're going like, that's the same thing I did. We had a conversation about that yesterday. Yeah. The reality is, Jesus is not telling us that here. He's not saying, you know, love as I have loved you to command us to have a certain feeling about things. Because when Jesus says, I command you to love one another, he's not saying feel this way. He's saying act this way. You act with love toward another person. If you've fallen out of love with someone or with the feelings of love or stop loving altogether, the first step is to begin to act with love again. Remember which actions of love were once part of your relationship with your husband or your wife or your kids or your friend, and you act in that way. And some of you go like, well, I feel like I'd be a hypocrite if I did that. If, you know, I acted a certain way, but I really didn't feel it. You know? I'd be a hypocrite. Well, let me tell you something. Let me just give you an example. You do it every day. I guarantee it. Tomorrow morning when you get up, a lot of you will not feel like going to work. Just be honest. Won't feel like it. 
And, and your, your inclination, if you live that way, feeling like if I don't feel like it, I shouldn't do it. So you're just going to, I mean, how many of you would call into work and say, well, boss, I just want to let you know I don't feel like it today. So I'd be a hypocrite if, if, if I came in today. Are you good with that? That would never work, right? Never work. You wouldn't have a job very long for one thing, but also the reality is, is that just a wonder. But see, we do it all the time. I don't feel like going to school today. Some of you try to get by with that. And your parents have learned that doesn't work either. I'm sick. No, you're not. Going to school anyway. Um, so, see, we do things all the time like that. Do you think that Jesus felt like dying on a cross? I can tell you from Scripture. I can point out to Scripture and tell you he didn't. Because the night before he was in the garden, what did he say? He said, he said this. He said, he was anguished, and he, he was going, he goes, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Meaning, take this, this burden from me to die on a cross. I don't want to do it. But then at the end of his prayer, he says this, Yet not my will, but yours be done. Yet not my will, but yours be done. One writer calls it, nevertheless, praying. You know, when we feel like, we don't feel like something's going on, I would feel like doing something. I really don't feel like in love with this person. I mean, I, I'm, I'm just be honest, you know, but sometimes we just like, I just don't feel too much in love toward my husband. I mean, he's such a big jerk. He keeps telling me that you shouldn't feel that way. Or, or my wife keeps nagging me. She keeps telling me, you know, I should lose weight and do all these kind of things, you know. What? Or my kids, man. My kids, you would not believe them. I mean, they've done the stupidest thing in human history for the third week in a row. And you just don't feel it. What you pray is, nevertheless, not my will, but yours will, will God. Doesn't matter about what I feel. Feelings are, feel, feelings are, are, are not something you run on. Are feelings part of the package of love? Yes. Yes, they're part of the package of love, but they're not the thing. Of course, if sometimes feelings are a, part, are a wonderful part of the package, right? Sometimes they're a woeful part of the package. But feelings don't get the deciding vote on how you choose to act. Because if they do, they'll be wrong most of the time. Feelings tend to follow actions, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. So when you begin to act with love again out of an obedient heart, what happens is feelings eventually follow. So this command of Jesus is new, not so much in its content. I mean, how many have heard before? Love one another. I mean, that's standard stuff, right? We all know that. But he says it's a new command. It's not so much new in the content, but in how it's to be lived out. The old way of living life before this for Jesus' follower, for the Jewish people, for other people, is, is uh, that we're they were motivated by fear of judgment that God would bring on. If I don't do this, if I don't express this, you know, I'm, I'm fear God's going <laughs> to... But Jesus says no longer is that true. Now the new commandment is motivated by love. He says this in 1 John 4, 18 when he says it this way. There is no fear in love. No fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. He's talking about this whole thing of the type of love that God wants to have for us and us for other people as well. It's not based on fear of how somebody respond to us. It's based on love. It's based on an expression of that. 
So Jesus' new commandment is the key to renewing love in a real sense. You know, it's even the way that we renew our relationship with God. If you've fallen, you know, if, if I love to be around new Christians, I love to be around new Christians. I'm talking about like baby Christians, like day old. You know, my uh, grandson's here today. Uh, is he in the back somewhere? He's in the, he's in, he's in the uh, mother's room. That's where he's at right now. Okay, somewhere over back there. Uh, my son and his wife came in town this weekend, and, and it's cool because. And, and let me tell you. Newborns are cool, you know. You can get to hold them, look at them. They don't do anything. They don't talk to you, talk back to you. They don't do any of these things, you know. New Christians are even cooler. No, I mean they're cool as kids, but they're even cooler because they are so excited about their relationship with Christ and they have this, all this enthusiasm. And some new Christians, man, and ones that have the, you know this really outgoing personalities. I mean, I've talked to them before, and and, and they would they're ready to charge hell with a squirt gun, you know? They don't really care. But the sad thing is, over the years, people have been Christians for a long time. What happens is we lose our first love. Those feelings toward God, those excitement of being connected to God, the, the creator of the universe. And, and Paul talks about this because and in Ephesus, the church had lost their first love. And Jesus' advice to them in Revelation 2.5 is this. Change your hearts and do what you first did. Or you did it first. He's saying if you want to love, it's not about how you feel. If you don't feel in love with God, go back and do what you did at first. Whatever it was that got you connected with God. Man, if I want to get connected with God, I have to go back and do certain things, and I've been disconnected from God. It's, it's spending time with Him away from everything else. For me, it's out walking in nature, hiking, you know, trails and doing things like that, and just focusing my attention on about getting rid of technology. But that's what help, helps me to do that. See, the secret to renewing their love isn't in some new thing they would, you would discover. It was in doing the things that were done at the beginning with a new attitude that results in a changed heart. Why is this so important? I'm going to wrap up with this. Because much of life is routine, is it not? We just do the same things over and over and over. And if we don't allow acts of love to become a part of our daily routine, love will be missing from a majority of the minutes in our day. And the good news is this. Whenever you see a command from God in the Bible, it always always implies a promise from God as well. Because God doesn't give us anything to do that he doesn't supply the power to do it. We see that throughout Scripture. Because God would never command us to do something that he wouldn't give you the power to do. That would be cruel. Sometimes we think God is just sitting up in heaven going like, well, how can I ruin their day today? No, he isn't doing that. He wants us to grow up. And the reality is, is... This command to love one another as I have loved you is not to discourage us. It's to help us to learn to do the one thing that's most important, to trust in him. Let me, let me close with just two little simple illustrations. This will take about three minutes. Um, how many of you remember the story, the kid's story called The Little Engine That Could? Little Engine That Could? How, how of you remember that? If you don't know it, it's a great kid's story. Go look it up and read it, okay? <laughs> It'll take you three and a half minutes. Uh, 
It's about an engine, a little engine that couldn't get up a hill. And so what happens is it learns this little mantra. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. He starts quoting this over and over and over. And as he does, he goes faster and faster and faster. And he goes up the hill finally. It's a really cool story. It's a wonderful children's story, but we shouldn't place it as our philosophy of the Christian life. Because there's going to be times in life, if we simply do it, I think I can, I think I can, we'll get to the place where we can't, we think I can't and we can't. Because there's going to be things in life that come our way that we can't do. I don't care how sharp you are, how much power you think you have, how much resources you have, there are things you can't do that I can't do. The second story comes from the Bible. It comes from Matthew chapter 14, which the story, let me just tell you real quick. The disciples were in trouble far away from land and out on the Sea of Galilee from a strong wind that had arisen. And they were fighting heavy waves. And it must have been, a, you know, kind of one of those messy, messy days, you know, where the waves were flopping up and down. And, and they were out there for a long period of time. And for some reason, they couldn't get back to shore because the wind kept pushing them back. And they couldn't do it. And it's about 3 o'clock in the morning, according to the Scripture. Jesus comes walking, and once again, 3 o'clock in the morning, it's kind of dark, okay? At least it is around here, and I think it is out there too. Uh, it's kind of dark, and, and Jesus comes walking to them on the water. And I'm thinking, when I was out on Sea of Galilee last November uh, in a boat at night, I'm going like, wouldn't that be cool if Jesus came walking on the water? Then I'm thinking, no, I would be just like the disciples were, terrified. Because I'm going like, that is freaky. You know, I mean, we don't see that every day, right? At least I haven't. Maybe you have. I've never seen that before. And he came walking on water, and they said, the Bible says they were terrified because they thought it was a ghost. But Jesus calms their spirits because he says, hey, it's all right. It's me, Jesus. Don't be afraid. Then the one who always spoke first, Peter. Always spoke first. Foot in mouth, Peter. He spoke first, and sometimes he shouldn't have spoken, but this point he speaks first and he says to them he says lord if it's really you tell me to come to you by walking on the water now how did he think of that i mean that's the last i don't think i would have ever thought about you know let's i would just say jesus come on get in the boat but he said jesus if, if it's really you prove it to me by letting me walk on the water and so jesus says come on i'm kind of paraphrasing a little bit here but you know that's basically what happened and he steps out of the boat and he's walking on the water. He's keeping his eyes on Jesus. And he starts looking around and he's like, whoa, this water is kind of messy. His waves laughing at my, you know, getting my outfit messed up and all kinds of things going on here. And when he begins to do that, what did he do? He began to be terrified and he started sinking. And he cries out to Jesus and it says in verses 24 through 32, kind of part of those verses, Peter says, save me, Lord, he shouted. And instantly Jesus reached out his hand and grabbed him. And then Jesus says, as I like the NLT version, that's what I put it on the screen. Jesus says, you don't have much faith, do you, Peter? I mean, one minute you're saying, let me walk on the water. The next minute you're sinking. You're kind of up and down. You're kind of like most of us. And then Jesus says, why did you doubt me? I mean, one minute you're trusting me to let you get out of the boat, walk on the water. The next minute you're doubting me. What's, your, what's up with this? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind stopped. Everything was calm. Now, let me ask you a question. How did Peter walk on the water for those few seconds? 
Was he going, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. Was that what he was doing? No, Scripture says he was watching, he was looking, he had his focus upon Jesus. He was trusting in Jesus. For just those few seconds, he was, he was living his life in the center of God's will and trusting Jesus. I mean, there was no guarantee if he stepped out of the boat, but he stepped on the water, he was going, no guarantees, right? We read the story thinking, well, oh, yeah, no, he had to trust Jesus to do that. But then he took his eyes off of Jesus. As soon as he did, he started, quit trusting Jesus. He started sinking. See, there's two different ways to live life. This is for Christians, too. There's the way where I think I can life, where we simply go through life and simply say, well, I'm a Christian, you know, I followed Jesus one time long ago, but every day I really don't really stay in connection with him, and so I really don't trust. I, mean, I, I say I trust him, but I really don't trust him because I don't spend a lot of time with him, and so I don't know him that well. But I think I can. And the other way, which is the way that this verse of Scripture where Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you, which says I want to trust Jesus, is this way. I know I can't, but I know God can. I know I can't, but I know God can. See, the first life, I, I think I can life, is independently dependent on our own motivation and energy. The attractive thing about this life is that because we are each wonderful creations of God, there are many things we can accomplish on our own. The problem is when I think I can life, is, it, it, that is all there is. There's always another mountain to climb. And one day when you're going to run into a mountain, you can't climb. And if you, if you simply live life where I think I can, and not motivated by I know God can, can't, I know I can't, but I know God can. If you, if you live the other way, I think I can then what's going to happen is you're, you're going to crash and burn like Peter did when he stepped out of the boat and got his eyes off of God, off of Christ. See, one of the most refreshing and energizing moments in any life is the moment when someone says, I know I can't, but I know God can. And we live our life every day that way. That's what Jesus is trying to teach us. In this passage, love one another as I have loved you. Not in our own power, because we can do it. But because I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me. And keep on trusting me. Every day. Because I know I can't. But I know God can. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your incredible love. For the fact that you love us so much that uh, you give us the encouragement, the strength, the, the direction to live life in a way that would just honor you, God. It's not because we're so incredible beings, but God, you, I mean, you made us, and we do have gifts and talents and abilities, and we're to use those gifts and talents and abilities as much as possible to honor and please you. But God, what we need to understand is this, there's some things in life that we can't do. And, and the reason that you challenge us in, thing, in things like this, loving one another as I have loved you, which is a huge, huge way of loving someone, is because you want us to learn to trust you, God, more and more every day. Help us to live life as persons who realize, I know I can't. There's a lot of areas I just can't. I can't love people all the time that way. 
But God, I know you can. And God, you have promised in your word, you have promised to give us the power to love others in that way as we keep our focus upon you and as we trust you day to day. It's a process of growth, God, of learning to trust you more and more. God, may everyone here, everyone that hears this message, everyone that reads this scripture, learn this lesson that more than anything you want us to trust us, trust you. And in trusting you, God, we live life to the fullest. Guide us now, God, as we sing our closing song, we go our separate ways, that this week we'll truly love others as you have loved us. Guide us now, God, this day, and all we do and say, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.